Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration, refugee, and population issues brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. This is Rachel Reyes, CMS's Director of Communications. In this episode, CMS's Executive Director, Donald Kerwin, speaks with Father Thomas Rees. Father Rees entered the Jesuits in 1962 and was ordained in 1974. Among his professional accomplishments, he served as associate editor of America Magazine and as its editor-in-chief, where he wrote on politics, economics, and the Catholic Church. In 2014, Father Rees was appointed by President Barack Obama to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent, bipartisan U.S. federal government commission that reviews the facts and circumstances of religious freedom violations and makes policy recommendations to the president, the secretary of state, and Congress. He was reappointed to another two-year term in May 2016, and he was elected to a one-year term as chair of the commission in June 2016. Father Reese also serves as senior analyst for the National Catholic Reporter. We're grateful to you, Father Tom, for agreeing to this interview. Thank you for being with us. And we wanted to speak today on the Commission's report, which is entitled Barriers to Protection, the Treatment of Asylum Seekers and Expedited Removal. And this is a follow-up report to the groundbreaking Commission study in 2005 on the same issue. And maybe to, to just start by way of explanation, expedited removal is the process where people are caught at or near the border without documents or with insufficient documents, and they're subject to this fast-track removal process without going before a judge unless they express a fear of return. And if they do, they're to be then referred to an asylum officer for a credible fear interview. If they're found to have a credible fear, they're then referred to an immigration judge to be able to seek political asylum in a removal proceeding context. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, this was uh, the law that was set up, and uh, we were asked by the U.S. Congress to take a look at it and see how well it was working or not working. Uh, Normally, all of our work is on international religious freedom issues outside the United States. This is the one area where Congress asked us to look at something and find out how it's operating in the United States. We're going to get to the second part of your work for sure at the end, but let's start with the expedited removal report. So in the last study in 2005, what the commission found, and a number of us have relied on this report very extensively, is substantial noncompliance by border officials in advising people who are subject to expedited removal that they could ask for protection if they feared return. And then when people did ask for protection, 15% of the cases, uh, people who expressed a fear of return were nonetheless removed without being referred to an asylum officer contrary to the law. And this occurred, as it sometimes does, while the border officials were being watched and monitored and studied so that the actual violations were likely higher. So 10 years later, 2014, 2015, the commission concluded site visits at five ports of entry in four border patrol stations. What did it find? What we found was that most of our recommendations have not been implemented. We still had situations where border patrol agents were not informing people of their rights to uh, claim that they were in danger of persecution or uh, violence if they were returned to their home. 
so they weren't informed of their rights. Things like, you know, not having documents that they could give them explaining their rights and, and having them in a variety of languages, because not everybody coming across the border speaks Spanish. There are a lot of Indian languages and things that uh, are needed. And not only that, but often there's the border agents were always very suspicious of any uh, claim to uh, persecution or the potential persecution. And, and we found that uh, some of these agents were in fact acting more like judges. And th their only obligation is to inform these people of their rights. And if they say they fear persecution, then they are to hand them on to someone else. They are not to be judge, jury, and the executioner in this process. And so we saw them going beyond their authority. And even the questions they would ask, uh, sometimes they were leading questions that, you know, set people up to give the wrong answers. You know, for example, a simple question like, you know, why did you come to the United States? Why are you trying to get into the United States? That's the way the question is supposed to be asked, an open-ended question. But what we found was some people were saying, why did you come to the United States? Was it to get a job so you could support your kids and your family? Well, sure, that may have been part of the reason, but that isn't getting at the question of fear of being persecuted or attacked or of violence if they get returned to their country. And if they answer, sure, yes, and then they're not asked any more questions, okay, that's it, you're done, over, goodbye, and you're shipped back. So the, the uh, Border Patrol people need to be much better trained on how to ask these questions, how to communicate to people their rights. These are very important things that are required by the law. I mean, we want the system to protect U.S. security, absolutely. But we also want it to protect people from violence and harm if they're returned home when they do have a right as a refugee and an asylum seeker to stay in the United States. I mean, it sounds like it goes beyond training on how to ask questions. It's a level of skepticism and even hostility to claims and maybe a doubt that there are legitimate claims. Is that part of it as well? I think that is part of it. But I think that part of it is also is making clear to Border Patrol agents that their job is not to pass judgment on whether this is a legitimate case or not. Their job is simply to record uh, the request from the asylum seeker that they want, they do, are seeking asylum because of fear of violence and persecution. Once they say that, and once that is part of the record, then it's their obligation to pass it on to the next level, to the uh, U.S citizenship and uh, immigration services, so that they're the ones who are trained to see if there is a credible case here. They're, they're the ones who are trained to do this and to do it properly. And that's why these cases should be passed on to them and not the judgment made at a lower level. Yeah, what, what happens at these initial interviews has always been very unclear and, and there's not a lot of uh, exposure or transparency about it. And in 2005, the commission proposed to remedy that, that the initial interviews be videotaped. And I wonder if you found whether that's occurring or not. No, it's not really occurring. Uh, this would be very helpful. I mean, when you make a phone call to a 1-800 service number, the first thing you hear is, 
This phone call may be recorded for quality assurance purposes. Well, this is what we're talking about to videotape these interviews so that they can be reviewed by people higher up in the agency to see are they being done correctly. Uh, it makes sure that there's a record of these, these interviews and to make sure that the people are working correctly and doing the job that they're supposed to be doing and asking the questions properly and making sure that people are informed of their rights. It's a quality assurance procedure really is what we're calling for. Uh, and this, I think, would help in improving uh, in the process and showing that additional training really is needed for these officers. And, you know, and as you say, I think it's also a change in culture. If the culture of the Border Patrol people is simply grab them and send them back, and that's all, that's all they're worried about, then we have a problem because asylum seekers will be sent back. People could be sent back and put in harm's way and even killed if they return to their country. And I don't think that's what the American people want to happen. Yeah, I wonder if it's asking too much of border enforcement officials who have that orientation, that enforcement orientation, to do this work and to kind of wear a different hat suddenly. And whether it makes sense that they have any role in referring people to credible fear interviews? Should there be some kind of a, a special core that actually is there to conduct these initial interviews? Well, I think in an ideal system, there would be another person there whose responsibility would be solely to look into whether these people are asylum seekers or not. Doubt that's going to happen. And if it's not going to happen, then we have to make sure that these people are better trained and know their responsibility and make sure that they're doing it correctly. Because I think it's important if, if somebody doesn't do their job correctly, if they don't inform someone of their rights and they, they send back a real asylum seeker and that person is killed, well, I think that agent is responsible for that. So... Just as an agent would be responsible if they let in somebody who uh, caused problems in the United States, you know, they are responsible for both of those things. And that's what has to be made clear to them in their training and in the culture of the institution. Some of these interviews are now conducted remotely. They're virtual interviews. And do these kind of interviews make it more difficult to identify people who are fearful of returning? I mean, having done asylum claims myself and listening to people that do these all the time, it's more difficult certainly to read, you know, nonverbal cues and to follow up on them and to ask follow-up questions when you're at a distance like that. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of problems with these virtual interviews, you know, by computer and by distance. First of all, they, they occur in, in rooms where people are practically right next to each other doing these things. So there's no privacy involved here. And sometimes a person is there with other people uh, from their country, and they may be a member of a persecuted minority, and they need privacy so that they can communicate these issues honestly to the person uh, that's doing the interviewing. I mean, we've seen cases where people are whispering because they don't want the people around them to hear who they are and why they're seeking asylum. 
So that's a problem to begin with. Secondly, as you say, it's much more difficult to pick up on body language and uh, nonverbal signals that are, are there when you're doing this through a computer, through a computer screen. You can't pick it all up as well as you could if you were face-to-face in the room with the person. And some of these people are probably people who this may be the first time they were ever on a computer Uh, and aren't really comfortable and are just kind of upset with it. But then there's also another problem with these interviews. It appears that they're following kind of a template of questions um, on the other side, which is not all bad. I mean, it's good to have the questions clear and followed, but sometimes in the template that's given to the... uh, people who are doing the interviews, they have sample answers. And what we discovered was they were cutting and pasting the sample answers into the responses of the people. And this is not the way it should be done. Or we have the cases, like I mentioned earlier, where they're adding to the questions and saying, why are you coming here? Was it to get a job so you could support your people, your, your family? So again, this has to be very carefully monitored, and the people have to be very carefully trained if it's going to be done properly. So are they actually asking and answering the questions in those cases, in some of those cases? How do they incorporate the answers into the questions? I'm curious. Well, I mean, they, what they do is the person doing the interview will ask a question and kind of suggest an answer. I see. And uh, it's the wrong answer. It's kind of, gotcha. Okay, you're coming here to get a job. That's it. It's over. But we also saw that there was difficulties and problems with just incorrect answers being recorded. I mean, for example, there's a four-year-old child, and on uh, the child's paperwork, it said that the child was coming to the United States to get a job. Uh, And then there was a Guatemalan woman who clearly said during her interview that she had a very good job in Guatemala, but she fled the country because of fear. And again, they put in her report, came here to get a job. So even getting the reports accurate is a problem. And sometimes they're simply incomplete. Like it might say, yeah, they're looking for work, but they also left the country because they were afraid uh, their teenage daughter was going to be trafficked by the gangs there. This kind of incompleteness is problematic. This is, again, a reason why we encourage the idea of videotaping them and then having the sessions reviewed to help in educating and training of the personnel that are involved in this. I want to get back to that issue of the risk of persecution and death of people that are returned. We've never had a complete picture of the frequency with which this occurs. And I wonder how, how we might get better information on that really crucially important question. Does the commission have a recommendation on that? Yes. I mean, uh, you know, we, we, we were faced with the same problem, and I raised that question myself. As a social scientist, I want numbers. I want an information. And basically, all we have right now is anecdotal information. We hear from uh, human rights groups. We hear from uh, immigration groups that are uh, concerned about uh, the asylum seekers, and we, we hear stories. One of our recommendations in our report is that the GAO do a study uh, for Congress of this to track some of these people who are denied 
asylum and find out what does happen to them when they return to their country. Uh, this is the kind of thing that I think the GAO could do and would provide us with some concrete data uh, and information to help guide us in this, uh, in this process. That's, that's a great idea. The, um, the asylum officers at USCIS, they, they go out, they do these credible fear interviews. The credible fear standard is a little bit different than the asylum standard. But there, there's a lot of effort made. And then at the end of it, if they find that somebody has a credible fear of persecution, they refer them to an immigration judge for a, you know, a removal proceeding where they can ask for political asylum. And the backlogs in the immigration courts are now at 520,000. So why is it that the asylum officer doesn't just make the determination on political asylum at that point? Well, that's something that uh, we recommend and should be done. There are other situations where asylum officers, in fact, can do that with people who are already in the United States under a tourist visa or something like that. They do have that authority. When it's a slam dunk, clear case, they do have that authority. On the other hand, if it's a case that's in doubt, where then it has to go uh, to an immigration judge. Uh, and so that's a recommendation we make that to simplify the process and, and keep it moving forward. The commission also visited 12 detention centers between 2012 and 2015. The American Bar Association, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and others have concluded that detention should only be used as a last resort and that the least restrictive means necessary should be used to ensure appearances for hearings and, and whatnot. Yet the commission found that detention of asylum seekers is widespread in these cases, as is the use of these what are called ankle bracelets, but really they're ankle monitors and they're very ungainly and humiliating for people. Is detention appropriate in expedited removal cases and I guess, why are there still not sufficient numbers of these community-based supervised release alternative to detention programs for a population that's not going anywhere, that's a very low flight risk? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, once, once there's a determination that there's a credible case for uh, an asylum seeker, there's no point in putting them in prison-like conditions. And in fact, this is what we have at times. Not only that, it's expensive. I mean, it's crazy. The uh, having places where they can go and live in, in much uh, less restrictive circumstances is much cheaper. And there is very little flight risk. In fact, uh, the, the turn-up rates uh, for their hearings before the immigration judge are extremely high, and they come. And part of it is because they do have some supervision, and they're, they're informed, and they're told, okay, your hearing's coming up, okay, let's do it. So this is the way we do it. It's more humane. It's less costly. It just doesn't make any sense to uh, keep putting people in prison-like conditions, especially families in these circumstances. Yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about those conditions because one of the administration's uh, initiatives, signature initiatives, was to create civil detention facilities and to apply civil detention standards to people that aren't criminals after all. Could you describe the detention conditions that these asylum seekers are facing and are they, would they fairly be considered kind of civil detention, soft detention centers? There are some 
civil detention service centers, but not enough. I mean, there are still people who are held in penal conditions. I mean, the yellow jumpsuits, prison guards, bobbed wire, uh, stuck in uh, rooms with no uh, programs, no activities for months while they wait for this whole process to work out. It's very demeaning and very... uh, inhumane kinds of conditions that they are put in. And there's no reason for it. There's no reason to do it in this kind of way. And why are people deemed to have a credible fear being detained at all? Exactly. I mean, it's quite clear that uh, they're more than willing to show up for this, and uh, uh, it just does not make any sense. There's also this issue of the commission has found this, that some asylum seekers are being criminally prosecuted for illegal entry, illegal re-entry. At the same time, they're seeking protection and seeking asylum. Why is that practice problematic? We we found it very problematic. And it seemed to us that before you prosecute somebody, you ought to first find out, well, are they legitimate asylum seekers? I mean, it really doesn't matter if they've been across the border once or twice or three times. If they are a legitimate asylum seeker, then we should give them asylum and not throw the book at them for technicality. This just does not make any sense. These people are in fear of their lives. So, of course, they've come over two or three times. Now, if they get denied asylum, uh, then, okay, then you can put them into the criminal justice system and prosecute them. But to, to prosecute them before you determine whether they are a legitimate asylum seeker or not just does not make any sense at all. They basically start, start their lives in the United States if they eventually get yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, part of the trouble here also is that part of the expedited removal system, I mean, one of the criteria is you're coming into the country without legitimate papers. Well, almost many, many, many asylum seekers had to have fake papers to get out of their country because if they, had, if they used their real papers, they would have been arrested or killed. Or they, they fled in the middle of the night and had to leave their papers behind. So, surprise, they come into the United States without papers. Again, a technicality. The real question is, are they real, legitimate asylum seekers? And that's the question that has to be asked, not simply, oh, check this box, they don't have papers, send them back. There's also this problem with lack of resources. Of course, there's very substantial resources for immigration enforcement. I think the combined budgets of Customs and Border Protection and Immigration and Customs Enforcement is something like $19 billion, which is more than all the other federal law enforcement agencies combined. But very modest resources for the adjudication and the due process side and the consideration of these cases. And as a result of that, you have something like 150,000 now backlogged affirmative asylum cases and 520,000 backlogged court cases asylum, but also other types of cases. I wonder if you could speak to what that means for this whole process and for the asylum seekers in particular. Yeah, it's really not good. I mean, it slows things down so terribly. I mean, these people's lives are put on hold for months and months and months, sometimes years, while they're waiting to get before an immigration judge. And it's really, again, stupid because you have to deal with this huge group of people 
you know, are you going to keep them in prison? How are you, what are you going to do with them? I mean, process them. If you process them more quickly, then you don't have the expense of dealing with them, watching them, of detaining them, and all that sort of thing. I mean, it's again, it's penny wise and pound foolish. They should be spending money to get the cases processed rather than having this backlog because the backlog itself is expensive for the government. And it's just these people have to put their whole lives on hold. Uh, And if they have family members in the United States, they're kept separated from them, all of these kinds of things. It's justice should occur with all reasonable speed. When justice is delayed, it's denied. I wanted to ask about legal representation because study after study has found that legal counsel is, uh, is more important in terms of getting the right decision in cases and in approval of cases and, and meritorious cases than even the underlying merits of a claim. And it also creates efficiencies in the process. There's fewer delays, there's cleaner cases presented to judges and to asylum officers and the like. Does everybody in detention receive, first of all, the basic legal orientation screening that the government provides? And do all asylum seekers in this process have legal counsel? Well, I mean, this is, again, another problem that we found and we're uh, concerned about. One of the things we found with asylum seekers is they don't know what's happening to them. They don't know what the rules are. They don't know what the process is. They don't know what their rights are. And that is not communicated well to them. You know, we need information in multiple languages. We need video things that explain the rights to people. We need people who there to explain it to them. Because most of them don't have legal representation. And if they do, those that do get legal representation, either by paying for it themselves or from some uh, legal service that's doing volunteer pro bono work, those cases go quicker. Those cases uh, tend to have a much higher rate of granting of asylum. Because if you've got a lawyer, he starts to see where everything went wrong earlier in the system. Because, you know, when it comes before the judge, the judge gets a bunch of paper, which has been created by the people down below. And if the paperwork is wrong, the judgment is going to be wrong. Most asylum seekers don't know that they have a right to challenge that and to point out that, no, that isn't what I said or that doesn't reflect all of the, what I told the people down at the first level and stuff. Whereas if they have legal representation, then all of those issues can be brought up. The incoming administration is reportedly considering expanding this expedited removal process, perhaps applying to people that have been here for a longer period of time, expanding it geographically and the like. I wonder what that would mean for refugee protection and due process. Well, I mean, this is a new idea which we did not look at in our report. So I have to speak as a a human being, not as chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. But I think the simple answer is, if the system's broken, it's not going to be fixed by expanding it. I mean, it was expanded once before. Originally, it was only supposed to cover uh, entry ports. Now it's been expanded to uh, you know, people who have crossed the border at other locations. If you expand it to two years and the system isn't working well right now, 
how do you expect them to do it well when you add thousands more people into the system? And not only that, I mean, just how do you figure this out? Two years. How do you know when they crossed the border? How do you know it was within the last two years? You could pick up anybody off the street and say, oh, you just came here within the last two years. You're now under expedited removal. And they say, oh, I came here five years ago. Well, prove it. This has got a lot of problems connected to it. The um, Center for Migration Studies, our agency, participated in a fact-finding trip to El Salvador, to Guatemala, and to southern Mexico this last summer. And what we were struck by was the domination, really the mafia-like domination of many communities by gangs and the constant fear of gang recruitment, conscription, violence, particularly among youth and, of course, their parents by extension. And extortion in some places was endemic. As a result of these conditions, we've seen 400,000 Central American children coming by themselves in family units, mostly women with young children, arriving at U.S. borders since 2013. They've been subject to detention, they've been subject to expedited removal in the U.S., and then to interception programs in Mexico before they actually are ever able to reach the United States. Why isn't this population treated as a refugee population if they're fleeing conditions like they are? Yeah, this is really very problematic. You know, we're especially concerned about families that come ar across the border that are fleeing this kind of violence. And that's one of the reasons why we recommended that they have special agents who are trained to deal with family units and to deal with especially women uh, coming across. So we encourage that they should have more women border agents involved in this whole process. These people are, are often afraid of police. They're afraid of uh, government people. And you need people that they can relate to, that they can open up to, that they can tell their story to comfortably. And uh, we feel that that with these uh, women and, and their children coming across, this would be much easier with a woman as the, the interviewer rather than, uh, than a man in many cases. With regards to uh, children who come across on their own, they technically aren't under the expedited removal process. So they're under a different law. So again, I officially can't comment on that, but any human being that has looked at this situation realizes this is especially a case where they need legal representation, somebody to look out for their best interest. I mean, this is, just seems to me to be a no-brainer to be quite obvious that this is needed. So uh, these are some of the kinds of things, uh, again, that uh, our commission looked at and, and recommended. You know, the 1980 Refugee Act 36 years old now. It called for a high-level director of the U.S. refugee program. Given the attacks that it's been under, the complexity of it, the multiple players involved in it, um, still the recommendation has never been followed. You've now come out with a, a call for a high-ranking DHS official to coordinate refugee and asylum issues among the agencies that are involved in expedited removal, and there are several. Would you describe the need for such an official? Can you give us a little bit more on that recommendation? Oh, it's absolutely necessary. Homeland Security is an amalgam of agencies that at one time were totally on their own and never wanted to be brought together and are very bad at communicating. 
I mean, if the CIA and the FBI can't communicate with each other to get terrorists, you can imagine the problems of getting the Border Patrol, ICE, and the uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services all getting together and communicating and making sure that this process works properly. So you need somebody who can crack heads together. You need somebody who's high enough up in the, uh, in the hierarchy who can say, yes, you are going to meet. Yes, you are going to talk. Yes, you are going to make sure that these uh, things can operate seamlessly from one agency to another and that this system works in a way that protects our security but also respects the humanity and the crisis and the uh, problems that asylum seekers experience. And uh, so we think it's very important to have somebody in a position of authority who can make this happen. Somebody, you know, who would basically take our report and say, okay, we're going to implement it. I wonder if we could switch now and talk about the global refugee protection crisis, often called the refugee crisis very unfairly as if refugees actually caused it, but it's a global crisis in protection, not a global refugee crisis. There was this UN summit on the large movement of immigrants and refugees, and they came out with a report in the so-called New York Declaration that called for more equitable responsibility sharing among states on refugee protection and support. Where are states falling short in response to refugees who have experienced or who are at risk of violence and persecution based on religion? This is a really very serious problem. In the Middle East, you can see, for example, there are some uh, countries like Turkey and, and Lebanon and Jordan that have had huge numbers of refugees, both from Syria, Iraq, from Palestine, that are uh, really overwhelming their countries. We see, you know, a million refugees from Syria trying to get into Europe. And we need to deal with this crisis and see these people as human beings that are worthy of respect and care and compassion. We also need to look at the countries that are straining under these refugees and, you know, and help them out especially countries that are refusing to accept any refugees or very few refugees like the United States, then we have even a greater responsibility to help in the care of refugees in these countries that are much poorer than we are and are being totally overwhelmed. But when you consider the number of refugees that are being taken by Canada, by uh, Germany, by uh, you know the Scandinavian countries, by Europe, in comparison to what we're doing, we're doing minuscule in terms of accepting refugees. And, you know, we should be a leader in this. Our country is built on immigrants, and we all have immigrant blood in us. And we should be doing much, much more in reaching out and caring for these people in a compassionate way. We have a lot of calls now, politicians, the press, even the public, raising concerns about the admission of certain refugees, Muslim refugees, refugees from particular countries like Syria, like Iraq. And some have proposed only admitting, and this came up even in the presidential election, only admitting Christian refugees. Um, And of course, Christians are, and other religious minorities are experiencing extraordinary levels of persecution in some places. But could you comment on these proposals 
both the idea of banning certain categories of refugees, not admitting people based on religion, and the, and the need as well to admit Christian refugees and religious minority refugees. We have been very strong in saying that you don't classify people by their religion. If we start doing that, then we legitimize all of the religious discrimination around the world that our commission has been very critical of. If we start practicing the same uh, kinds of things the countries that we condemn are practicing, this is just crazy. In point of fact, for example, the Syrian refugees that are admitted into the United States are the most vetted group of people that are admitted into the United States. And as far as I know, not one of them has been involved in any kind of terrorist activity. These are our natural allies. These are people who are running away from ISIS. These are people that hate ISIS. And we're saying to them, we don't want you? This simply does not make any sense at all. And in, in, in places like Iraq, where we have refugees that actually worked with the U.S. government, they're Muslim, but they worked with the U.S. government. We have, you know, U.S. military people begging to get these refugees admitted into the United States because they worked with us, and now their lives are in danger. And we're going to say, no, we're not going to let you in because you're a Muslim. This is a betrayal of people who put their confidence in us. So I just think this is extremely problematic to have these kinds of religious tests. Now, certainly Christians are also part of this and should be admitted into the United States. There's been some accusations that Syrian Christians are somehow discriminated against in terms of admission to the United States. Frankly, we haven't found evidence for that. In fact, the percentage of Iraqi Christians who have been allowed into the United States as refugees is way over their proportion of the population in Iraq. Uh, so why are we admitting more Christians from Iraq and fewer from Syria? It doesn't make any logical sense that this is government policy or UN policy. We have, in fact, just commissioned a study of this issue of the Christian uh, re refugees from Syria that we're going to be looking very closely at and reporting on uh, in the next few months. But so far, I haven't seen any evidence of overt discrimination against Christians in the refugee process. There's um, a fear that the incoming administration may decrease refugee admissions in 2017 and beyond, or simply slow down the process or starve this program of money and people. What would the effect of that decision be? The U.S retrenching or stepping back from its role in resettling refugees on people that are fleeing religious persecution? I think it would be devastating. I mean, we are supposed to be a leader in the issues of religious freedom in this country. I mean, that's one reason we have this U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. In the State Department, we have an ambassador for religious freedom because this country was founded on the principle of religious freedom because so many of our ancestors came here fleeing persecution. And for us to suddenly say no 
to others who are fleeing religious persecution is just a denial of everything we are as Americans. And, and this would send a signal to the rest of the world that we don't care. In other countries, I mean, we're supposed to be a leader, and if, and if we stop doing this, then other countries are going to say, well, the United States isn't doing it. Why should we do it? Why should we be admitted? Why should we be worrying about this? I think this is uh, very, very bad and uh, could cause tremendous problems. One of the things, too, if you actually look at, at who is sponsoring and who is helping these refugees, even the Muslim refugees in the United States, it's Christian churches and religious groups. I mean, I think that this administration is going to hear an earful from the evangelical community and from the Catholic community, which are two groups that have been sponsors of refugees and understand how important this is, and the Jewish community. So the problem is, because of fear of public reaction, the sponsors of refugees have kept their uh, work very quiet. I think we're going to have to come out and put human faces on these refugees to introduce them around to our communities, to show them who they are, uh, that they're not people to be afraid of. They're hardworking. They're people who uh, want to contribute to the community and people who hate ISIS and hate this kind of terrible warfare and religious strife that's going on in the Middle East. Yeah, I've always wondered about why vilification of refugees is a populist issue, but somehow support for people that are fleeing for their lives that kind of embody U.S. values can't be a populist issue. Yeah, this is a problem. When we were in the Cold War and anybody was fleeing a communist regime, we, we accepted them as refugees. We knew they were anti-communist. We knew that they were, were going to be on our side. Well, now, were there communist infiltrators among these refugees that were coming across the border from East Germany or from Cuba? We didn't seem to be terribly worried about this back then. But suddenly, because they're Muslim, they've been tarred and feathered as dangerous people despite the fact that these are the very people being killed by ISIS and by Boko Haram and by these other groups uh, in these countries. We've taken a lot of your time. Are there any closing remarks that you might have or points that you'd like to make on these issues or on the commission's work in general? Well, I think on the whole question of the expedited removal, I think the essential issue is that all of these agencies involved in this process need to follow the law. The uh, personnel need to be trained. They need to uh, change the culture of some of these institutions so that they realize that part of their responsibility is to protect and help asylum seekers and to uh, not do, especially with the Border Patrol people, not to pass judgment on these cases, but to do what they're supposed to do, to pass them on to people who are trained to uh, figure out whether there is or is not a credible case uh, for fear of persecution. So uh, really all we're calling for is that these agencies follow the law, train their personnel, 
supervise their personnel to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So thank you for taking the time and thank you for all the terrific work of the Commission and the work that you're doing on the Commission. Thank you. CMS On Air's theme music is provided by Danny Deberstein and The Music Case. To get more information on CMS projects, publications, and events, visit us at cmsny.org.